today's connected world, secrets don't remain secrets for long, especially in the world of music. Surprise albums aren't always surprises, reunion tours get leaked, sometimes artists even release their material early just to get it out there. Sometimes uh, Dave Matthews Band leaks a bunch of shit onto people in Chicago. (laughs) Subtle, but I got it. In the 90s, though, bootlegs were like gold. If you were able to get your hands on a rare live recording or a grainy video of a raw performance, you were the envy of all your friends. In the spring of 1995, my brother Matthew, who you also may know as the co-host of this show, came home with a cassette tape containing an entire album by a then-unknown band called Foo Fighters. He told my twin and me that it was a recording done by ex-Nirvana drummer Dave Grohl of all new material. This was the stuff of legend. We didn't know how a nerdy high school kid even wound up with something like this. What it contained was better than I could have ever imagined. Dave Grohl's little pet project soon blossomed into a band that would become one of the most enduring and beloved rock acts of the last 30 years. It all started with a vocal intro to a song we will discuss on today's episode, This Is A Call. Visiting is pretty, visiting is good. All right, I think this is like the most nostalgic of all of the things that we've done on this show for me. Totally was going to say the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, cause like I was like, I, I remember this, this pretty well. I do not remember who I got the tape from. I Damn think, it. Yeah. Come no, it, on. I, I think someone like it, probably someone posted on like the alt music alternative, uh, uh, Usenet group and said like, you know, email me for this. You're killing me. This, this is like putting it in the same categories. I kind of forgot who I lost my virginity to. Yeah. I can't remember that. Uh, and can't remember where on. I got my, <laughs> It was dark, uh, <laughs> um, but I. But who cares? Like, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like you know. Dave didn't send me the tape. No, but it was. It was like to me at the time. I was like, how on earth did somebody get this? It had not been released yet. Like, I'm sure it had gotten passed around. Like, fill in the blank. Like, like you were probably the. 10,000th person to hear this thing. Oh, sure. But to me, it didn't exist until you brought it home and it yeah. existed. No, and I remember I remember listening it, to it for the first time and being shocked because you know, in you know, now it seems like obviously like Foo Fighters, you know, one of our uh, most successful, most beloved rock bands. But this was not like you know a foregone conclusion because if you think about it at the time, like how would you feel if you hear like the drummer of a popular band has a new solo album and is using a really stupid band name, <laughs> and then and then you hear that he's written all the songs, played all of the instruments, right? Saying it, you're like something isn't going to line up, here. right? Your assumption would be. That that sweet seventy five would have been the uh, successful band. Yeah, and anybody who doesn't know who that is, sorry, Chris Novoselic. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and you wind up with a band with arguably one of the five best frontman men of the past twenty five years. Uh, yeah, like he he is he is magnetic. He uh, he is a great pop songwriter. Like you know, this is this is like a guy who just loves pop music and is very good at it. Yeah, the the bootleg tape that you brought home sounded like it had been copied ten times. I'm sure it had. Which, when you listen back to the original album once it was released, 
it sounded like it had been copied about three times. Right. That's the thing. I remember thinking like uh, when I when the CD came out, like like oh now I'm gonna hear these songs, but like you know like with perfect sound and uh, like it sounds pretty much it's, the same. Yeah, it, it does not sound good, but you could hear how great the songs were. Um, there were a couple songs that didn't even make the album, but were on that demo, Winnebago and Butterflies. Yeah, which are on YouTube. Um, and and like, I just went back and listened to this entire thing, and I still think it is an absolutely fantastic album. Like, a, a couple of not great songs, which is to be expected of sure. any album, but in general, just such a great debut album. And he admits that he was really nervous to get this stuff out there. Like, I bet, yeah. Th- like so so then we we know about this band and they haven't put out the album yet but it's starting to kind of get around that that Dave Grohl is doing this thing and you come home one day and you say Foo Fighters are coming to town they're opening up for this guy Mike Watt who I didn't know who he was at the right. time and then discovered that he's one of the most legendary bassists in punk and rock music and they've decided they don't want to do their own tour they just want to open up for him for a, a tour around the country yep. that they called the not too terribly hard 25 shows in 42 days North American tour with Watt and we got to go and see this brand new band with Pat Smear on guitar, uh, the bass player from Su- and drummer from Sunny Day Real Estate, and Dave on guitar and vocals. And it was raw, and it was heavy. Now, I'm trying to remember, like, because I, I know around the same time I also saw um, Shudder to Think open for Foo Fighters. That, we went to, that, we that, to that show, show also. also? That, was okay. ne- that was the next year. Okay. And they were playing with, with a band called Wool. As well, right? Um, you were a pretty big Shutter to Think I'm fan. Still at that a time. big Shutter to Think fan. I fucking love those guys. Like, uh, I, I, if there's any way I could convince you to do Pony Express record for this show, which I know there isn't. Yeah, <laughs> everyone's, everyone's gonna go. I never heard of them. Never heard nope. of it. But it, it is a good album. It's really good. Um, side note: Around that same time, I was listening to a lot of Pete Droge. And I just went sure. back and listened to his album, Necktie Second. That was his major label debut that never went anywhere. Right. Great album. It's really good. Yeah. Nobody's ever heard of it, nope. but it's a great album. Um, this show, the opener in front of Foo Fighters was a band called Hovercraft. And for the people who weren't there to see Foo Fighters and the few people who were there to see Mike Watt, everyone else was there because Hovercraft it had been rumored that Eddie Vedder played drums for this band. I remember this. I had forgotten this until you mentioned it, but then I totally remember that. It was not true. And in retrospect, why would that have been good? I, yeah. <laughs> well, there, you, you know, you had brought home this tape with this drummer right, right, singing, sure. and that was good. And I'm like, okay, so the next logical step is the singer is really good <laughs> on drums. And the funniest part of it to me, which you probably don't remember, is the stage for Hovercraft was really dark. And we're like up front, but you cannot see the drummer. He is not lit up at all. So we're like squinting, trying to go, maybe it is Eddie. Maybe it isn't Eddie. And by the end of the set, I'm like, 
I don't really care. This band is not very good. Sorry, Hovercraft. It, it, it was not the best opener I've ever seen in my life. Sure. This um, th- When you said, like, Eddie Vedder on drums, this reminded me, which I'm sure I've brought up on the show before, like, I constantly find it amusing that um, uh, R.E.M. let Peter Buck drum on two songs that appear on R.E.M. records, and he's so bad at drumming. <laughs> Why would they do that? <laughs> I don't know. One of them is a hidden track, and one of them is not. <laughs> One of them's not. One of them's like, yeah, let's throw it on there. See what people think. Not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so Dave Grohl, clearly great at writing pop songs. This song is a great example of this. Yeah, this song, I love this song. It's my favorite song on that record, which I agree, like has a lot of good songs. I think the slow songs on this record are so good. Like Big Me is a classic, of course, but like uh, Exhausted, fantastic. Fantas- fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I, I want to talk about his style of writing in a minute, but yeah. I, I want to preface this by saying before Nirvana broke up slash Kurt Cobain died, he had already put out an album called Pocket Watch. That w- I didn't know about this. Yes, you can find it on YouTube and it's all just him. The only song that really made it anywhere was Marigold was put as a B-side on a Nirvana single. Okay. Um, and then it's mostly stuff that you've never heard that's never seen the light of day until oh, somebody Oh, I didn't know about this at all. Yeah, so, and and he didn't want to release it because he was very nervous about it. He admits that at the time he looked up to Kurt as a songwriter so much that he was intimidated by, by that whole idea. I mean, yeah. Um, so Kurt wrote songs in a style that both Dave and, and Kurt and grunge in general... It, soon was referred to as loud quiet loud right and this is a call is a great example of it where the the energy of the song and the the momentum of the song come from a quiet part a loud part a quiet part a loud part so this song starts out really quiet like it's the beginning of the album and then it slams you in the face with a really hard verse yeah and it stays pretty heavy and then what could be called the bridge Everything drops out again, and it's just vocals again. Right, and, and it's got uh, it's got a great post-chorus breakdown, which I think uh, like not enough songs do. Um, you know, the the instrumental part, do 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 do. Yeah, and and you listen back to that, and you go, Dave was playing all of this. Yeah, like sometimes these days, he's surrounded by such great musicians on stage uh, that. You kind of put his guitar playing as secondary, like like he could probably just not play through five songs sure. and it would still sound good. But this is all him up front and anything you hear on this album is him and, and he sounds really great. Yeah, um, there there was like one little bit of the song that I want to call out. And uh, um, in the chorus, he's playing this like little, little guitar riff, like on the on like the top three strings of the guitar. That's like, like, do, 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 um, which is like a really classic, like grunge and rock in general thing to do to like take take one note of a of an arpeggio and like just keep bringing it down half a step, which I, I asked you if that's called a line cliche which i think is really something slightly different it's something slightly different and i was embarrassed that i did not know what a line cliche was and it is a real thing i had to look it up and what you're describing is correct but i don't think that's what's going on here because of the chord changes going on underneath yeah um i i think that that 
and certainly if you asked him, he wasn't he wouldn't say, oh, you know, I was just trying to do a line cliche. No, I know. Um, but but like there's a clear base progression here that is is creating changes underneath what he's doing. So I don't think so. Um, but I do think that it's really great songwriting from w- what was then a very inexperienced songwriter. Yeah, no, as we've talked about before, I love it when when uh, a band uses like a little bit of guitar to make a big impact. And I feel like that does. If you took that little guitar lick out of the chorus, the chorus would be much less interesting. Right. You had also mentioned in the notes uh, Dave singing on this track and this entire album. Yeah. So the I remember like the vocals being criticized, maybe like like even in like the Rolling Stone review or something, um, uh, and or poss- possibly in the Addicted to Noise review, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, that uh, we criticized for like you know just kind of being like kind of not there yet, and that he had doubled the vocals, meaning he like sung sung and recorded them twice and played both tracks at once to make it sound fuller. And I listening back, like I think you know he did get better as a singer, but I think the vocals on this record are really good. I really like them. Yeah, the, the lyrics not so much. No, the lyrics um, are bad. <laughs> Minison is pretty. Minison is good. I'm like, okay, Minison must be something that I don't know what it is. Minison isn't anything. You can find something that says that it's some sort of handmade jewelry, but I don't think he's like, I'm going to sing about handmade jewelry. It's nothing. And I'm like, you couldn't have come up with anything else that was pretty and good. It's like we're going to make up like pompatence. Um, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, like uh, uh, probably the uh, the handmade jewelry was a nod to the song Turquoise Jewelry by Camper Van Beethoven. Definitely. Um, <laughs> uh, I until until you like mentioned this like earlier today, I always thought it was medicine is pretty. It's medicine. Sure, of course it is. Yeah, I, I, none of the lyrics to the yeah, song. Yeah, so the lyrics to the song are complete nonsense, which is fine. Oh, I mean, so, like we did an entire episode on Oasis, whose lyrics mean absolutely, absolutely nothing, and, nothing. and yeah. write great pop songs. It it's a pretty common thing. Yeah, uh, the band that I always think of these days is. Paramore. Um, mm-hmm. Paramore is huge. Oh yeah, and their their big song is called "Misery Business." Yes, um, great song. It's it's such a great song, and I I remember probably in the late two thousands, I was uh, living on Alki Beach here in Seattle, and one hundred seven seven the end, who's the local alternative station. Uh, opened a beach house down there for the summer and basically said, come hang out with us whenever you want. We got drinks. We've got food. And I'm like, that seems a little weird. But sure enough, right down the street from me, 107 The End was broadcasting from this little beach house. And like all my favorite DJs would hang out there. And even if they weren't on the air, which you could sit there while they were on the air, they'd be sitting around like drinking beers and talking. And I remember talking to one of the DJs and I'm like, Okay, man, you can't like everything that you play on th- on this station. What don't you like? And he's like, have you ever paid attention to the lyrics of Misery Business by Paramore? Those things don't mean anything at all. I don't I don't think I agree. I feel like that that is like clearly like a breakup song, like I hate your new girlfriend kind of song, right? S- some of it, yes. Some of it, no. Okay. I, I like... I can see where you're coming from, but they are really bad lyrics. But yeah, I don't oh, even, sure. I don't even pay attention to it because the song is so good. Oh yeah, no, I don't care. 
Um, so yeah, so I was thinking about this. Like this is this is like a real like old man moment for me. But like uh, I texted you the other day because, uh, and I hope you did listen to this song um, about how uh, I was listening to International Pop Overthrow by Material Issue. Yeah, um, nineteen ninety one. They they're they're one like you know they were not a successful band, but their one you know possible song you might know is um, Valerie Loves Me. Yeah, um, and. I think so. So Jim Ellison, the singer of that band, who uh, who died tragically young in the mid '90s, um, uh, I think was a great pop singer. And listening back, like he is flat, like quite often on that record, and it's totally fine. And like you know, the fact that li- that uh, vocals have to be perfect today because they can is annoying. Um, and like, you know, I sometimes like as a vocalist, sometimes like beat myself up because like, you know, I sing flat sometimes. And like, I realize like, it's not that my pitch is bad. My pitch is fine. It's that like, I'm comparing myself against albums that have been pitch corrected, like to within an inch of their lives. I, I remember recording an album in 2007 that was instrumental with horns and we were recording live and our trumpet player hit one bad note that was a half step off. And he's like, damn it, we have to take it again. And it was the first time in the studio that I'd ever watched an engineer go, no, we don't. Uh, what note were you, do you mean to hit? He's like, I was a half step down. And it took him about five seconds yep. to just push the note up. I'm like, okay, well, uh, you don't need us anymore. We're out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's too easy. Like, like things don't have to be perfect, though. It, it's it, sometimes the imperfections are what makes the music. I know, great. and like that's that is you know something that I love about going back and listening to '90s music is that the vocals just sound a little bit more human. So obviously, Foo Fighters are still around, and in fact, they just uh, this week um, announced that they are releasing their 11th album on yep. June 2nd. Uh, the first single is great. It's really good. Yeah. I'm assuming Dave Grohl's playing drums on the album, but they've got a tour set up and they still have not announced who the drummer sure. is going to be. So I'm really curious about that. Well, I've got news. It's Peter Buck. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to that. <laughs> People will, but not me. Um, but but I want to say uh, Dave Grohl has become larger than life. And yes, uh, are there people in this world who don't like Dave Grohl? Are you even allowed to not like Dave Grohl? It doesn't seem like it. Like, as far as I know, he's never said anything terrible that uh, that he should be canceled for. Um, he so so there's this great interview. He was on the Jesus and Marrow show, um, and uh, he they asked him like like it's great to see Dave Grohl flustered, which which doesn't happen a lot. They they asked him so. Black people really like Dave Grohl. Can you explain why this is? And he's like, uh, like I, I like afraid of saying something racist. Like, right. So, so he says like, just like you know, like music's for everyone. And like, I don't even think it was racist. I think he's just like sitting there with two black guys going, um, how do I answer this question? No, 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 this, no, no. this is entrapment. <laughs> right. Exactly. No. Like. No. Like. I'm afraid I'm going to say something stupid. But like. Like. You you read his book, Storyteller, mm-hmm. and he doesn't talk about music like, look at how famous I've become. He talks about it more like, look at all the famous people who I've got to hang out with. Oh, like, yeah. like he's still a fanboy, not a superstar. Like this whole thing about 
about playing stadiums is not about being famous. It's about getting to play with Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones and Paul McCartney and a and Tom Petty. laundry list yeah. of other people. Yeah. Before he started Foo Fighters, Tom Petty had asked him to be the drummer for the Heartbreakers, and he said no to him. Right. Um, but like he's a family man. He's generous. He's funny and charismatic. He doesn't get into drama like you. I had I can't remember. Did I have the conversation with you or somebody else? You don't really see video or pictures of Dave Grohl out in public. No, he doesn't really like. Does he does he still live in like Virginia or something? I thought he lives in L.A. now. Okay. I'm sure he has houses here sure. in, in Virginia, but it's like. People don't run into Dave Grohl getting getting coffee. He like stays out of the spotlight. Nobody's like, I went to a party and raged with Dave Grohl on Saturday night, and it was the best night of my life. I'm sure. I said, I said that. I was I'm lying, sure there are but... stories like th- like that out there. You you just like to name drop. I I understand that. I love to. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh- uh, speak, yeah, speaking of which, so so Foo Fighters got me my first ever real writing job because once I had this this bootleg cassette, I was reading uh, this this online music magazine I liked, Addicted to Noise, in 1995, uh, 90, yeah, 95, and uh, I uh, they like wrote something just saying like you know we hear Dave Grohl's working on something good, and I'm like oh they don't have the tape, so I like I like emailed you know the the email address for for the uh, online music magazine said i can send you this tape if you want a copy and i uh, heard back from jan uhelski who's uh, like a legendary music writer one of the founders of cream magazine and she's like yeah send me this tape and like do you want to write something for us and i'm like okay oh yeah and i, and I wrote yeah. for them for a couple of years so so you remember her name and what she did but you don't remember who got you the tape no oh god damn it uh, I thought this was going to be some sort of amazing story, like <laughs> in the dark of night, pulling up to a curb in Eastside Portland. The tape was passed through a cracked window. Yeah, no. Who who would have been like a cool person in Portland at the time? Who who would have passed me the tape? I'm going to go with Thomas Lauderdale, the piano player for Pink Martini. Okay. Yep. I'll buy that. Got got it from Thomas Lauderdale. Yep. Okay, that's the story. One more thing here. I think that it would be criminal not to say rest in peace to Taylor Hawkins. Yeah, of course. Who unfortunately passed away last year. And when Dave needed a new drummer for this band, could not have found a more perfect drummer for this band. I mean, he is he was such a character. He like when you would see them live in the in the later years they would do this thing where Dave would get on drums and Taylor would get up and be the front man and do vocals and they would do all covers with yep. him and he was phenomenal like the Dave was a drummer who became a front man and he somehow found another drummer who could be a front man yes. to play with his band and it, and it was just always so much fun seeing them play together and I it's just a tragedy. Yeah, I imagine it must have been pretty intimidating at first uh, being the drummer in a band that Dave Grohl is also in. Yeah, well, not just in, but Dave was looking for a drummer to replace himself yeah. because he'd already replaced the drummer from Sunny Day Real Estate on the second album because he didn't think that he hit the drums hard enough. Yeah. Yeah, it, big shoes to fill and talk about doing a great job. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, what are you listening to? Well, I didn't really think it would be my thing. 
Um, but Boy Genius, the album is called The Record. Yeah, it's good. I like it. it. I I think that that the record is kind of a um, narcissistic name, or could be interpreted as that. Oh, I think it's funny. But I yeah, I think I think it's also supposed to be funny, like. Like, I hope you don't take us too seriously just because we have our own careers. But it's a super group of three of the most popular female indie artists today. And, you know, a lot of times these things wind up where the whole is not as good as the sum of its parts. I am not the biggest Phoebe Bridgers fan. I think that her songs are too sad for me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I get that. I think in this setting, she is great. And I think that the album really gives each of them their own voice at certain points. But when they're working together, it really, really works. And, you know, good for them because they're doing like a arena and amphitheater tour where alone oh, yeah. they're, they're like in small theaters. And then uh, Unknown Mortal Orchestra 5, which came out in April. Do we need another Aussie psych rock band? Oh, I was going to say, like, I know that band name, but I don't know anything about them. They're technically so. from New Zealand. Well, the answer is... <laughs> The answer is yes, we do. I think to some people that's an important distinction. Uh, yeah, maybe New Zealanders. I don't know. <laughs> You're always lumped us in with those other what, blokes. What does technically mean here? Does it just mean yeah, they are yeah, from New Zealand? You know, it's like the new pornographers, new pornographers are from Canada, but does anybody really care about that? Like, <laughs> does it, has anyone ever really been to Canada? Yeah, like, I've heard of it. I, but Yeah, it, it's, it's like where 19-year-olds go to drink. Uh, but the band's been around for 12 years, and I think this is their best and most success- accessible album yet. Okay, um, I'll check hi- it out. Highly recommend it. All right, uh, I got two. Um, Fruit Bats have a new album uh, called A River Running to Your Heart, which uh, is a very cheesy name. Um, but I think this is their best album in, in several years. Like, they, uh, they've they put out albums like every couple of years, but this one is exceptional. And uh, there's a song on it called It All Comes Back that has an amazing keyboard and guitar riff. We have talked about this band on the show before, and I just want to say, for some reason, Facebook, the last couple of weeks, has been promoting their show coming up in Seattle to me. Oh, Lori and, and I are going. And the promotion says, I can't wait to see you in two weeks at the show box, not we. So at some point here, Eric Johnson has decided that Fruit Bats are not a band. They are just him. I mean, I think that's correct. I think it's fair, but but it's interesting that that like the ad being put out is like, don't even worry about who else is playing with me anymore. You're we all know that you're just coming to see me. <laughs> that is that is weird wording for the ad. Yes. Yeah. Also, like uh, you never you never know when you go to an Eric Johnson show which which of the three Eric Johnsons you're going to get. I'm hoping the guitar hero from the '80s. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one other. So there's uh, I believe this band is Japanese. They're called Yuragi. Uh, y U R A G I. And the album is called Falling. And. Uh, I I will say uh, if you if you are a person like me who has a really high tolerance for bands that clearly think that Radiohead's Creep is one of the best songs ever and wants to like sort of write their own version of it, there's one of those on here uh, along with a bunch of other really good indie rock and a really awesome album cover. Where I would say the concept of the album cover is the members of this band have really great asses, so let's go with that, but in a tasteful way, like if Ansel Adams shot it. So okay, I want Jake to pull this up right now and like tell me if i if if i didn't just totally nail what this uh, album cover is yeah i i uh it's really I, good i meant to look this up before. no i'm glad you waited <laughs> why is it not coming up 
the the album is called Falling. Oh, I think that's the song. Oh shit. Okay, so Falling is the song that sounds a lot like Creep, which is a really good song. Um, let me let me get the album title. Okay, I'm sorry. The album is called Here I Stand. Here um, I Stand. The the song the my favorite song out is Falling, but the whole thing is good. Anyway, here's the album cover. Did you find it? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like John and Yoko double it's, fantasy. Yes, it is like that. <laughs> uh, all right, I will have to check that out. Um, so you can find us at hiddenjukebox.com, facebook.com slash hiddenjukebox, instagram.com slash jukebox hidden, uh, on all of your favorite streaming platforms. And until next time, I am Jake Amster. Uh, and this one goes out for all the cows from me, Matthew Amster Burton.